Section 18 of Our Search for a Wilderness by Mary Blair Beebe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Jungle Life at Aremu. Some pages from my diary by C. William Beebe. Even more to the gold mine of Aremu than to Huri is the application island or oasis in the jungle appropriate. The clearing is about 20 acres in extent, approximately circular, with the magnificent forest trees crowding densely to the very edge. The bungalow and mine shaft are on the summit of a symmetrical hill, which slopes evenly and steeply down on all sides. The hill is about a hundred feet in height, and yet the trees far down at the foot tower high above it. The concession includes about seven and a half square miles, and in many places where the rock outcrops, well-paying deposits of gold are visible. At Aremu there is a soft quartz ledge, about eight feet wide, running almost vertically, and rich in gold. Often the metal is visible, and a small lens shows the yellow crystals encrusting the white matrix. The first day at Aremu, we went down in the mining bucket, two and two, each clinging to the wire cable and balancing the opposite person. Down and down went the swaying bucket, slowly revolving, the heat and sunshine of the upper air replaced by the cool darkness, damp and chilly, with rich earthen clay smells. Eighty-five feet below the surface, the four leads began, one a hundred feet along the vein. This consists of a ferruginous gold-bearing quartz, somewhat decomposed by the dissolving out of several of its constituents. The candles shed a flickering light on the slimy, dripping walls, and for a few moments one felt completely confused, so hard was it to stand there, shivering, and yet realized that a few yards overhead was brilliant tropical light and sunshine, gaudy birds and butterflies. One seemed in a wholly different world. But, though forever buried in dripping darkness, there were as bright colors here as in the living creatures above ground. Each side of the quartz vein ran an endless series of beautifully stratified, decomposed, talc-like clays, purest white, orange, slate-colored, pink, blue, yellow, and brown, one hue succeeding another like some strange fossil rainbow. Outside near the bottom of the hill, two gaping holes showed where the blacks who discovered the gold years ago worked the ledge by hand, leaving even in their tailings enough gold to make it well worth working over. Now electric stamps run by great boilers do the work, all brought up the little aremu bit by bit with the greatest labor at seasons of high water. Here at Hoori a few pork knockers were allowed to locate their diminutive claims and glean what superficial metal they could from surface deposits. A mile away to the west was a large outcropping known as England, and here four or five blacks were working. On each Saturday night they would bring their little packets of gold to the store to receive credit checks or receipts. 
once as we were crouching in the jungle watching some cushy or parasol ants two of these black pork knockers passed within a yard without seeing us each with his little bundle of worldly belongings on his head topped by a wooden gold pan i have mentioned panning as the most primitive method of mining next to which comes the long tom at england we found a third advance a method of breaking up partly decomposed gold-bearing quartz a deep narrow pit showed where the material was found shovelfuls being thrown up on two successive ledges before it reached the surface it was then carried to an open thatched roof beneath which was a primitive two-man power stamp this was nothing but a gigantic hammer made of two logs the hammer part covered with metal and the handle hung in a socket so that the center of gravity lay toward the head two men balancing themselves by clinging to uprights stepped in unison on the tip of the handle their combined weight depressing it and raising the head then stepping off suddenly the hammer came down with great force on a pile of broken gold quartz fed into a hardened hollow beneath it this mining enterprise required no less than five men and they were taking out about a dollar and twenty cents each a day comparing the division of labor among men with that among cells we may liken the single pork knocker to an amoeba where a single man and a single cell perform all the necessary functions the long tom with two men is like the simpler sponges where one set of cells secretes the skeleton of spicules giving shape to the whole and another set lashes the water and absorbs the tiny bits of food the crusher with its five men each performing his individual labor corresponds to some slightly higher organism a jellyfish or anemone while the electrically run stamps employing several score of men is like the complex cell machinery of a beetle or butterfly the aremu mine clearing had been in existence only about six months and the trees which were felled had been sawed up or burnt so that there was no such abundance of wood-loving insects as at hoorie at night a few longicorn beetles would appear and buzz about but almost no moths in fact during our whole stay only one moth of large size was seen one small species of moth with wings of general rusty red a light line along the front margin and spreading only an inch appeared in numbers on the evening of april second the following day we saw many of the gray rumped swifts snatching them from the bushes in the clearing i brought a single specimen back and found it was a species new to science which has been named copnotes albicosta walking sticks and mantises were more abundant some of the former had well-developed wings on which they whirred about the bungalow others had none at all or reduced to a scale-like vestige in an individual of a third group the wings while perfect were pitiful affairs mere mockeries of pinions barely an inch in extent 
while the body of the insect was almost five inches in length. When thrown into the air, the poor stick expanded his wings to the fullest, but wholly in vain. There was just sufficient spread of wing to act as a parachute and allow him to scale safely to the ground. We watched him several days and never tired of his peculiar walk, swaying from side to side. Often when at rest, the front pair of legs would be extended parallel with the antennae along the anterior line of the body, making the imitation twig eight inches over all. As we walked through the jungle wood roads close to the clearing, large forest dragonflies, small tiger beetles, Odontochilla confusa, Odontochilla cayennesis, and Odontochilla lacordariae, and a few yellow-spotted heliconias were the most noticeable insects. One or two of the giant metallic buprested beetles, Euchroma goliath, were sure to be seen flying about the fallen trees, and our Indian hunter invariably made a dash at them, and as invariably missed the active, alert creatures. Passing by a great mora stump in the clearing, our attention was attracted one day by a large caterpillar hanging, dangling about two feet from the ground, squirming and wriggling vigorously. We ran up and saw a most interesting sight. Through a hole about three-quarters of an inch in diameter protruded one of the claws of a good-sized scorpion. These villainous pincers had a secure grip on two of the long head spines of the caterpillar, which was dangling helplessly. As the latter wriggled, the scorpion made attempt after attempt to draw its victim inside the hole, a most absurd thing, as from tip to tip of spines the caterpillar measured almost two inches across. After watching this tableau, I caught the scorpion's claw in a pair of pliers, drew him out, and Milady holding him up with the caterpillar, I photographed them together. The caterpillar was a most gorgeous creature, pale green, fading into yellowish at the posterior edge of each segment, while the movable joints were dark brown. On the seven posterior segments there were six rows of branched spines, the stalks pale orange, and the branches pale blue, the three colors, green, orange, and blue, making a most harmonious combination. On the anterior five segments there were two additional rows of spines, small ones, low down on the sides. The eight spines on the head segment pointed forward, projecting beyond the head. The largest spines were on the second, third, and caudal segment, and were over three-quarters of an inch. All the blue branchlets ended in a dark, tiny needle point, and they stung like nettles, as we found when we accidentally touched some. I had never heard of a contest between two such creatures, and should think the scorpion must have been hard put to it for food to make frantic attempts to secure such a prickly mouthful. South of the bungalow, scrubby bush had been allowed to grow up, and here was a scattering of non-forest birds, three pairs of silver-beaked tanagers and a pair of seed-eaters. Gray-rumped swifts coursed over the clearing, 
and toucans macaws and orange-headed vultures were occasionally seen from the bungalow while a pair of splendid red-crested woodpeckers hammered the trunks and leaped from tree to tree all through the day in the clearing itself we saw little of mammalian life although we dined daily on all the bush meat from bush pig to akuri the whitened bones of an ocelot lay in perfect arrangement at the edge of the clearing fifty yards from the bungalow picked clean by ants but for some unaccountable reason untouched by vultures the animal had been shot at night chicken stealing at daybreak the red howlers came to the edge of the clearing and awakened us from our slumbers by their wonderfully weird chant jaguars were not seen or heard except one reported by the mail carrier who runs between aremu and perseverance landing some years ago an indian near here found a litter of jaguar cubs containing two normally colored and one black individual the latter was purchased by a colonist and sent to the london zoo a dull colored harmless snake four feet long with two rows of keeled scales along the back was the only serpent we found in or near the clearing lizards were everywhere and one very large iguana inhabited a bit of wood road but evaded all our efforts to add him to our mess pot the amphibians alone in this region would well repay months of study our brief visit gave us only a glimpse of them the commonest frog in the jungle near the clearing was a medium-sized dark-bodied one dendrobates trivitatus with green legs and two pale green bands one running around the front edge of the head back over the eyes and down the sides of the body the second line being beneath the first the under parts were covered with blue lines and mottlings the first half dozen seen were normal in appearance but then one was encountered which instantly drew my attention a closer look showed that the back of the animal was covered with a solid mass of living tadpoles each over half an inch in length when i urged him into a jar two tadpoles were scraped off and wriggled vigorously when put into water they sank to the bottom and made no attempt to swim although the tail fins were well developed and there was as yet no trace of limbs i kept this frog in a box with wet earth and a puddle of water and two days later half the tadpoles had left his back and were swimming strongly in the muddy water they were attached to the back of their parent only by their sucking discs and the object of the strange association seemed only temporary and not intended to last until the tadpoles became adult they would probably drop off and swim away one by one when their father entered some forest pool this species of frog was very active and capable of remarkably long jumps. As I shall mention later, the sharp eyes of my Indian hunter spied a most remarkable frog in the jungle one day, which I brought home in my pocket. Its scheme of protective form and color was perfect. The hue of dried leaves and withered mosses with deeply serrated sides and a high irregular ridge over each eye 
I placed it among some dried leaves and tried to focus on it with my graphlex, but could not find it. Then I stooped down, and although the fog had not moved, and I knew the square yard within which it was resting, it took me a full minute before I located it and optically disentangled it from its surroundings. I have never seen such a case of complete dissolution and disappearance. When I alarmed it, the frog closed its eyes, thus obliterating the dark spots of its irides, and then, little by little, opened them again. Every evening at half-past five o'clock, we would troop down to the stream and swim and paddle about on the sandbars in the half-day, half-moonlight. The water was cool and refreshing, and the temperature of the air invigorating at this hour, and to lie on one's back and look up at the lofty moras and other trees, stretching their branches fifty yards or more overhead, was a sensation never to be forgotten. We spent ten days at the Aremu mine, and it speaks well for the working possibilities of this region that I was able to rise at five o'clock in the morning and, with intervals only for meals, keep up steady work, exploring, photographing, and skinning until ten o'clock at night, when usually the last skin would be rolled up or the last note written. I would then tumble, happy and dead tired, into bed and know nothing until the low signal of our Indian hunter summoned me in the dusk of the following morning. I worked harder than I ought to have done even in our northern countries, and yet felt no ill effects. What impressed me chiefly in regard to the birds of this region was, first, the abundance, and second, the great variety. In the course of the ten days of our stay, we identified eighty species of birds, and observed at least a full two hundred more, which we were unable to classify, except as to family or genus. Wishing to study the birds alive, I refrained from shooting as much as possible, and chose to make this expedition rather one of preparation in learning what tropical woodcraft I could from an excellent Indian hunter than of gathering a collection and thereby a lengthy list of mere names. When some time in the future we return to this splendid field of study and spend months in careful observation of some such limited region, we may hope to add something of real value to our knowledge of the ecology of these most interesting forms of tropical life. We have the results of the collector par excellence in our museum cases of thousands of tropical bird skins. Now let us learn something of the environment and life history of the living birds themselves. It is against my rule to write in diary form, but owing to the limited time we spent at Aremu and the series of events, some of which extended over two or three days, I have made an exception in this case and will put down a few of the incidents of jungle life in the order in which I observed them. Far from giving all the observations made here on birds and other creatures, I have included only those of greatest interest, which will convey an idea of the conditions of life here as compared to those in our northern woods and forests. 
March 28th. Leaving the house before noon, I crossed the little Aremu by a footbridge at the western edge of the clearing. The stream here flows gently and smoothly. It is from one to four feet deep and ten to fifteen feet wide. Following it upstream, one is stopped within a few yards by a perfect tangle and maze of interlocked vines and trunks, showing what it was like lower down before the hand of man hewed and blasted a free channel. The forest about the mine clearing is probably near the extreme even of tropical growth. One feels absolutely dwarfed as one gazes up, far up, at the lofty branches, where birds like tiny insects are flying about in a world by themselves. The trunks are clean, hard, and straight as marble columns, and the undergrowth is thin, giving access in almost any direction, yet dense enough to harbor many species of birds and animals. Turning south along a wood road, I started on my first tramp into the jungle. It was the hottest part of the day, but there was all the difference in the world between sun and shade, and here in the recesses of the forest it was pleasantly cool, and birds and insects were abundant. One of the first sounds which came to my ears was a loud, intermittent rustling among the dried leaves, marked now and then by a low grunt. Crawling up quietly behind a great mossy log, I peered over and was surprised to find that I had been stalking a huge tortoise. I certainly might reasonably have expected to see a mammal instead of a reptile, as our tortoises of the north are not in the habit of attracting our attention by their vocal efforts. This was a South American tortoise, Testudo tabulata, of the largest size, not far from two feet in length, and he was busy rooting in the ground for some small nuts which had fallen in great quantities from the tree overhead and settled among the debris of the leaf mold. The shell of the tortoise was high and arched, dark brown in color, with a bright yellow center in each shield. There were two deep abrasions on the shell apparently caused by the teeth of some carnivore. These tortoises were very common, and we had many delicious soups and stews made of their meat. They were, however, heavy and awkward to carry, and we never bothered to bring them home unless on the return journey and near the clearing. In one individual we found eight eggs about to be deposited. My wood road led up a gentle incline down which logs had been skidded, and after a half mile it merged gradually into the jungle. At the last sign of the axe I sat down on a fallen trunk and quietly waited. Three blue honey creepers, two males and one female, dashed here and there in the branches close overhead. They uttered sharp cheeps until the males flew at each other and began fighting furiously. Ascending for fifty feet in a whirling spiral of hazy blue and black, and then clinching and falling to earth, where they clung together claw to claw and pecked viciously, and in silence their beautiful plumage disheveled and broken. The lady, heartless cause of all this terrible strife, cheeped in low tones overhead, 
and nonchalantly plucked invisible dainties from the undersides of leaves. I took a step toward the combatants, and they separated and vanished, the lady, be it noted, following swiftly in their wake. Close upon this melodrama came a fairy mannequin, black with a conspicuous white chin. I never saw another, and cannot identify it, distinctly marked though it was. Through the forest came the low belling of green caciques, then no sound save the drowsy hum of insects high overhead. The most frequent noise came from falling leaves, twigs, and branches. Yes, leaves, for gently as a falling leaf in this tropical world might mean, like the stroke of a sledgehammer. The realization comes again as a yellow leaf eddies past my seat that autumn is distributed throughout the whole year, while the freshly opening pink and reddish shoots on every hand show that spring is never absent. I observed something circling about in an opening to my left, and on examining it found a peculiar flat cake-like wasp nest with the solitary pair of owners, Polybia species, on the rim. It was attached to the extremity of a long, slender bush thread dangling from a great distance above. There was not a breath of air, and the secret of the circling motion, the nest moving irregularly in an ellipse of about ten feet, was not solved until, with my glasses, I made out a small monkey, a marmoset apparently, clinging to a branch near where the bush thread started. The little creature had found some store of food in a hollow or crevice of the bark. To get his hand in, he was compelled to push aside the dangling curtain of aerial root threads, and this occasional motion was enough to send the end far below, sailing around in a large circle. As I resumed my seat, a great beetle, like a polished emerald, alighted close beside me not heavy and blundering like a june bug or scarab but nervous flicking its wings wasp-like ready at an instant's alarm to whir away as swiftly as light a beautifully marked longicorn beetle buzzed past and alighted ten feet up a sapling leaving me eyeing it enviously a tremble with all my boyhood's collecting ardor heliconias sailed slowly past and one of the beautiful transparent jungle butterflies alighted at my feet with only a few dots of azure revealing the position of the wings white and yellow butterflies floated high in air where a hundred kinds of flowers flashed out among the green foliage lizards were abundant in this little clearing slipping along fallen trees with sudden rushes and halts or tearing madly after each other with loud rustlings through the fallen leaves. Some were beautifully colored, splashed with blue, orange, and green, while other dark ones had a network of delicate light lines crossing the back, cutting the creature up into likenesses of small, lichened leaves. When the sun shone out brightly, two or three minute midges danced before my eyes, Otherwise, I was free from the insect scourges of the tropics. End of section 18